Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I chat with Nicole Westbrook, a litigation partner with the law firm of Jones & Keller in Denver, Colorado. In this wide-ranging conversation, Nicole discusses deposition skills, the pros and cons of arbitration, the challenges of remote technology, and her advocacy for women in the law. Nicole also dives into an interesting case she handled concerning a multi-level marketing business and talks about some of the unique legal challenges facing players in that industry. I hope you enjoy the interview. Nicole Westbrook, welcome to the Litigation War Room. Thank you, Max. Great to be here. Nicole, I look forward to talking to you about your litigation practice and about an interesting case you handled in the MLM or multi-level marketing space. I also know you teach trial advocacy and deposition skills, and I know our listeners will want to hear all about that. But first, let's talk about you. Can you tell listeners about you and your practice and your law firm? Sure. My name is Nicole Westbrook, and I am a shareholder at a firm in Denver, Colorado called Jones & Keller. We are a national firm with an international footprint, and what I mostly do is complex commercial litigation. And so what every litigator wants that to mean is trial work, and I think something around the mark of 95% of all civil cases eventually settle. And so none of us ever get in the courtroom as much as we want, but uh, of course, over the last two plus years with the pandemic, I don't think any of us is getting into the courtroom. So that's a bit disappointing for all of us, but I think it's still a worthy goal and we like to get into the courtrooms. And so that's mostly my focus is how to take a civil case and get it through trial. Yeah. And you're right that the pandemic has imposed uh, challenges on all of us, not least of which are actually getting physically in front of a judge or a jury. I mean, I know you handle all different areas of business and civil litigation. In particular, one interesting facet of your practice is your focus, and I don't mean it's the whole focus of your practice, but I think you have kind of a a niche practice in helping multi-level marketing companies with their legal disputes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you got into that area? Well, sure. Multi-level marketing companies or network marketing companies are kind of a difficult sector. They are sitting ducks and targets for the FTC. And a lot of them can be out and out pyramid schemes. And of course, that's why they're targeted. Also, uh, something that they do is they usually start very small. You'll see them start as kind of a mom and pop or a family business. And then their growth is astronomical and it's fast. And they grow very rapidly through the United States, and then they start reaching out, you know, into other economies as well. And with that just comes a host of regulatory issues and contract issues. And they grow so quickly and they get so many people on board to be a distributor or a downline salesperson that they don't even have time to update their own contracts. And so they just, they're they're rife with uh, legal issues and and trouble. And a multi-level marketing company is just basically a company that has a product that it sells and it uses downline channels of people and their relationships with other people to sell these products. And so as a seller or a distributor of these multi-level marketing products, it would be your job would be twofold. 
One, you're trying to sell the product, of course, and market that, but also you're really marketing yourself because you're reaching out to your connections, you're using social media, you're using a lot of different tools and really honing in on your relationships to spread fingers out through your community and get those people to also not only buy product from you, but possibly sell product to their downline networks as well. So it's a very much a community business. The marketing that they do and the social media marketing is absolutely incredible. And, you know, the way that it shakes out is on either side. There are huge legal issues and and worthy battles. Uh, There's a lot of money typically on the table and there's a lot of time spent. When I talk to these distributors for these network marketing companies, they often tell me, you don't understand. I worked this business 24-7 for 20 years, and they really, really mean that. So they're very, very dedicated. And if at the end of the line, the network marketing company and the distributor are at odds with one another, the losses are potentially catastrophic, and a lot of heated litigation comes that way. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, I've run up against these disputes uh, a number of times in my career, not to the extent that you have, but I had a couple of IP disputes, shareholder dispute. I had a contract issue. I'm just thinking back over the years, and there really are. There's a whole sort of world here, a subculture here, and there really are a unique set of issues. And, you know, it seems like network marketing has really exploded, and it seems like you see it on social media quite a bit and people using those relationships and the very wide networks that they have on Facebook and other platforms to really promote their, you know, whatever it is. Is that a fair assessment to you? I think that's absolutely right, Max. And I think all of us sit back and kind of wonder, is this the age of social media, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Is it helpful for people's psyches to keep them connected to people? Is it harmful, right? Does it make people bully more? Does it make you more susceptible to uh, insecurities, things like that? And, and certainly that goes straight into this network marketing field. And One of the things that it does is makes it so easy for you to reach more people with your message, right? But the balancing act of that is that it becomes really, really easy to oversell or to fake. And if you're doing that as a distributor, you're showing wealth that maybe isn't real, for example. You're you're sticking out there that brand new Cadillac, for example, and that's in violation of your company's policy. And it might well be in violation of their policy because the other person that's looking and watching these representations is the government. And so the government is trying to decide, look, is this an actual network marketing company trying to sell a really great product? Or is this a network marketing company trying to be a pyramid scheme where we just take money from the bottom and we give it you know, up filters up to the top. And so everybody's watching to see what's going on with this social media. You can certainly reach more people, but you're also more likely to get yourself into trouble. Are you overstating your wealth? Are you showing an unsustainable lifestyle? Maybe you get disgruntled. You want to leave your network marketing company. Are you then going to try to take your social media presence with you? And does that violate a non-compete? And so there's all of these great ways that it can be used, but boy, you better read your policies and procedures and all of your other contracts because you're in peril every day when you're on social media. Now, that's really interesting. And I think that goes to what you said before as to why there are just so many legal disputes and legal issues in this space. It raises a unique set of legal issues and and challenges and attracts scrutiny. And the people who are in this line of business often come from you know, maybe some of them are, you know, less legally sophisticated or maybe newer to business or just for what whatever their background in a rapid growth 
industry and uh, maybe don't always mind their P's and Q's, or maybe it's not always crystal clear, given this environment, just exactly what they need to be doing to be compliant and to avoid and forestall disputes. So it's an interesting niche, to say the least. It is interesting. I mean, you know, we grew up with our mothers doing the Tupperware and, like you said, Amway. And now there's a whole host of of new ones out there doing all kinds of different businesses. So, you know, it's especially a great way for, you know, people in smaller communities. A lot of people who are in immigrant communities really like it because they're more likely to buy from a friend or a cousin than they are to buy from a big box store. And so these things can really flourish. So it is a really interesting niche, as you say. Yeah. Now, I want to come back and talk about a case that you handled involving this industry. But first, just a couple points about your own practice. One, tell us a bit about your federal clerkship before you went into private practice. Oh, sure. When I left law school, clerkships were really high on the list of what you should be out there doing. And I don't think I fully understood while I was at law school why I was being pushed in that direction or what it would do for me. But, you know, I I did go that direction and applied to a bunch of clerkships. And I was lucky enough to get a clerkship for a federal judge in the Western District of Texas. And it was her first post. She she had just been appointed as an Article III federal judge. And so I started with her. She was a very young female. She may have been the first female in the Western District of Texas. I'm not sure. And so I ended up staying there for a couple of years because while I went to a clerkship and it was very enjoyable and I learned a lot and I was in court most every day watching trials or hearings. And I think that it was during that clerkship that my trajectory as a trial lawyer was really solidified. Because when you're in there in the courtroom almost every day watching people and looking at different styles and looking at what works and what doesn't work, watching these trials constantly unfold, my courtroom was one of the busiest trial courts in the United States at the time. And so we were constantly with a jury. And at the end of each trial, the judge and I would go in and talk to a jury. And she would just ask them, what's good? What's bad? What did you enjoy? Thank you for being a part of this process. It's really, really important to our our country and to our, our judicial system. And it was interesting what they said. My, I walked away feeling very inspired by juries because I think they really try hard. And it is what you hope it is. It is that juries really think these things through. They are really dedicated and they listen and they try really hard to pick through the evidence and to find out what's right. And so, you know, I still think about that. It's never fun to lose at trial, but I try really hard to believe that these juries really get it right most of the time, that they really care and they really try hard. Yeah, for sure. You know, I used to practice in the Western District of Texas myself. I'm, I'm in Michigan now, but lived in practice in San Antonio at the beginning of my career and also was a, a summer clerk for a judge there in San Antonio while I was in law school. And what was amazing was just how big that district is. And it was kind of a point of pride, I think, in some ways for judges and clerks there is just how geographically humongous it is. Um, And the legal issues, this is probably true in every district, but really seem to run the gamut. I mean, you've got sophisticated patent issues. You had them in the Eastern District, I guess, but now they've kind of moved to to Austin and Waco, you know, but all the way to all kinds of immigration issues and criminal issues. And it seems like a pretty exciting place to, to have done a clerkship. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was really a good experience for me. And it's a great experience for a young person uh, just out of law school to go and to see the inner workings of a courthouse and to find out 
you know, how, how it works and, you know, who the CSOs are and who the docketing clerks are, who the deputy courtroom deputy is so that you know these people. And when you walk into a situation, you know who to talk to, how to behave. And it's not so intimidating. I think that probably walking straight out of law school and into the courtroom trying to get anything accomplished would be pretty difficult. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then what judge did you work for? Uh, the Honorable Alia Moses. Okay. And then I saw you've done some, looks like presentations or articles with her in more recent years. Right. One of the things that she and I are both really interested in is why we can't seem to retain high-level women in the legal practice. And so coming out of law school is roughly 50-50, sometimes a little bit more female than males graduate law school. And yet when you get to the level of the federal judge or you get to the level of even myself, who is a partner at a law firm in, in Denver, Colorado, which is a fairly liberal place, you don't see a lot of women that are still in the practice. And certainly, even if you cut it down further, you don't see a lot of females that are maintaining a trial practice and especially not a civil trial practice. And so there's a real concern as to why that is, why people are falling off that cliff. And we'd like to have a better representation. I just think that when you sit down to deal with a client's problems and or you're trying to sell something to a jury, you need people that have various backgrounds and perspectives on the world, not just one, right? You need people that can see things from a different angle and sell things at a different angle. I think that any large civil jury trial that you have today, not having a female represented on the trial team is a mistake. And so I just don't think that you match your jury panel if you are just, you know, the old white man, typical lawyer. And so the judge and I are just trying to investigate some of that and figure out why that is. So we've put out a few podcasts and, and documents about, you know, where we think that's coming from and where we think it's going and mostly just asking everybody to pay attention. Yeah, well, that is really fabulous. And I appreciate your thoughts on that. I'll have to check out some of those, uh, those podcasts. And so should our listeners. One other just point of interest is your involvement with NIDA, the National Institute of Trial Advocacy. How did you get involved with NIDA and what do you do with NIDA? So I think I took a trial advocacy course from NIDA at the very, very outset of my career as well. I think it was seven days in, in Dallas and mm -hmm. um, it is intense, right? That trial yeah. program is, is certainly intense, but it is worthwhile. It is a boots on the ground, standing up in front of your peers, being video recorded, watching yourself on playback, you know, giving an opening statement, giving oral arguments, witness cross-examination or direct, expert direct cross-examination, these kind of things, just basic skills that you don't get a lot of in law school. Some of us have trial ad in law school and some of us don't. And so, you know, it's just a way to elevate the profession. And I feel like that's exactly what Nita has done is it's really looking for a way to guide younger attorneys that might need a little more help. And it's looking to elevate the profession. You know, we, we talk highly about ethics in every course and try to get people to really pay attention to what's right and to doing always what's, what's right, elevating that over maybe what's popular. And so I was lucky enough to get asked by a fellow colleague. I was in a, actually, to be honest, I was dealing with some civil cases that were wrapped up in a big, messy divorce. And one of the gentlemen that I was teaching with was a sophisticated divorce attorney, and he is still a teacher at NIDA. And so he recommended me 
and I was able to get involved. And so what I've taught so far is I've taught some trial advocacy, and then I also routinely teach the deposition course. And I think that deposition is something that can really be overlooked, and it's really important to your case. And so understanding how you prepare for a deposition, getting into the elements of your case, and breaking those down and looking for the factual holes and then determining what kind of a deposition are you taking here? Are you taking a fact deposition or is it just discovery? You just want to know what the answers are. Um, are you going to try to then somewhere partway through the deposition change that from a question only deposition to getting a few maybe sound bites that you can put in a dispositive motion? Or are you doing a preservation deposition? Is this person never coming back to trial? Is he outside of the scope of what our subpoena powers can do for you? Is this person possibly dying? And so knowing why you're going in to take a deposition and then the skill set to take each different one and to really marshal and preserve your evidence, I think it's an important skill. And I think it's overlooked in law school classes and is something that we can do at NIDA to help kind of round out the education. You know, when I was in law school, I took a trial ed course, and it was on a NIDA model using the NIDA framework and NIDA materials. And then early on in my career, I took the deposition skills course from NIDA. And really, there are a few things that I have done in my career that were more practical and useful and that I've gotten more value out of. Just the way that the instructor sits you down and you you walk through the mechanics, um, you try it out, and then you sort of freeze and are critiqued in a positive, supportive environment, but get that real-time feedback and you get the repetition. Really, there's nothing like it. You can't get it out of a book. You know, it's hard to convey in any other way than in that practical workshop environment and and super valuable to me and I know many others as well. So that's really neat that that you're a NIDA instructor. Yeah. Thanks, Max. I'm glad you've had that opportunity to Check it out. You know, at, at the firms, we don't have the time for it and we don't have, you know, the patience. And so there's got to be a way to learn some of these skills. And I think Nita rounds that out very nicely. Well, yeah, not everybody can teach it either. So <laughs> if only all of our firms had somebody who could, <laughs> who could teach a Nita style course. Well, let's talk about the case. You and I, before this interview, talked about a very interesting case involving a multi-level marketing or MLM client. Can you kind of set the stage and just tell us a little bit about that case and the, and the background of the case and the facts that led to the dispute? This was an arbitration, right? It was, sadly. <laughs> sadly, it was, um, it was an arbitration. So I understand that, you know, there's no published opinions or that kind of thing. So is the identity of the client confidential? Yeah, it is. Okay, well, you can, you can call the parties whatever you like or discuss them however you, um, you like. Normally, I would say, here's this case, and it's called this. Um, but why don't you tell us a bit about the case and about your, your client, and we'll go from there. So this one was a case in which I was asked to defend a distributor who he and his family had been excluded from their business. And it was one of these situations where the distributor and his family had built a business in a multi-level marketing company and had been in it for, you know, 20 plus years. And so I think a lot of us as Americans, we really look at things in an entrepreneurial light. And this family did exactly that. And so they, they really worked day and night on this business, you know, including the whole family. And they built it from the ground up and, and they rise through the ranks. And these um, multi-level marketing companies are set up usually very hierarchically. And so 
this particular family was able to rise from the very bottom clear to the very top. There was no echelon above them in this multi-level marketing company. And what ended up happening was there were some females in the same network marketing company that came forward alleging that the gentleman that I represented had been unfair, had been treating them unfairly, mostly in a he seemed interested in them sort of way. So I think there were some affairs going on. And the question being, does a commercial actor, which we hope that most multi-level marketing companies are, can a commercial actor exclude you, shut the doors basically from your business? Because I think a lot of these distributors believe that it is their personal business Um, that they've built. And they really have built it from the ground up. The MLM sells a product, but the person, the distributor sells a dream and builds a business and builds a downline and builds a relationship. And so the real question is, at this point, if a multi-level marketing company does not like your behavior, even if it's not illegal, but if the multi-level marketing company does not like your behavior, can they shutter your business and just take it away from you without any sort of due process? And part of, the, part of the cloak and dagger of all of this is they have very confidential relationships uh, between the multi-level marketing company and the distributor. And they have, the multi-level marketing companies have extremely large, complex, ever-changing policies, procedures, contracts. And so it's very much impossible for a distributor to really know what's in there or to keep up with any changes. And so the question is just, can these things change all the time? And then, of course, everything's locked up in arbitration. And so the multi-level marketing company typically preserves for itself unilateral right to just terminate at will a business whenever they want to, regardless of how many tens of years you've spent building it. And then there's no real due process in that termination. It just happens. And then you're locked up into a binding arbitration as opposed to a you know, public court dispute. Because I think that at bottom, the multi-level marketing company does not want to show dissension in the troops. Well, that is certainly <laughs> creates a challenge for the litigator. Well, how did you go about tackling the case? And in particular, how did the fact that it was an arbitration as opposed to a trial shape your strategy and your approach? Well, arbitrations are not my favorite. I think that there's a difficulty in an arbitration of, uh, of being hometown, for example. So if you are not a local person, and a lot of these multi-level marketing companies, they, some of them are publicly traded. Some of them give a ton of money to their localities. I mean, they're very well-known and often quite well-respected. And so walking into an area where the arbitration must be conducted on the home soil and often at the offices of the multi-level marketing company, you really feel disadvantaged as opposed to, you know, we all feel that we can go to a court and get, you know, hopefully a fair, fair chance here in the United States. And so having an arbitration makes it very difficult. And I'll tell everybody that's listening, I think that as you write your arbitration agreements or go down the hallway and talk to your transactional folks about how to write an arbitration provision or whether or not you should actually include one in your contract, because 
everybody used to think that arbitration was the cheapest, fastest thing, way to get anything done. And that's really not the case. The arbitrations used to be where the actors, the parties, actually wouldn't get lawyers. They would just go to arbitration. Neither one would have a lawyer. So that's where this cheap idea came from. But what really ends up happening is you have a, a plaintiff who's paying a lawyer, a defendant paying a lawyer, and then also the arbitrator is getting paid probably more than you or I would get paid to defend the case. And so you're stuck in this arbitration, and then you you don't have rules, right? So that's the other thing that you might want to incorporate into an arbitration provision is what are the rules? Are you going to use the rules of civil procedure? Are you going to use the rules of evidence? And I think a lot of transactional lawyers think, gosh, it's so much easier not to have rules. Let's not have them. But I think a lot of the trial lawyers really hate that. We want predictability. We want to know what the rules of engagement are. We want to know that when we send over a discovery request, we're going to actually get discovery. We want to know that hearsay is not coming in at the arbitration. And so having no rules is really a difficult thing. And also, if your arbitrator thinks that they may get repeat business from the MLM, for example, because they know that these arbitrations are a dime a dozen, you wonder if they're going to really be able to be completely fair to both sides. Although I think a lot of people believe that arbitrators, by their nature, split the baby. And so that's not always a good way to go either. So going into this particular arbitration that we're discussing from last year, there was a lot of work to be done on the front end to try to seal up what the arbitration would look like. And so, again, we were in the middle of the pandemic. And so talk about making your life even harder. All of your depositions, every single one of them at this point, had to be remote. So like a 30B6 deposition was done remotely, which is just extremely difficult. It worked out very well for our clients. They were very happy, but we didn't end up settling that case until the Friday before the arbitration was to begin on the following Monday. Okay, so you did settle the case, but you'd gotten all the way through discovery before that happened. That's it. We were packing up the vehicles with all of our computers and monitors and sound equipment to go in and, you know, give a presentation at the offices of the enemy. Yeah, yeah. This is really interesting. Sometimes on this podcast, I just kind of nerd out and uh, go down these rabbit trails. But given your expertise in deposition skills in particular, I want to talk more about that and about the remote depositions that you've did. I've done my share of remote depositions throughout this pandemic, and I know many attorneys have. There are advantages, but they also come with disadvantages and frustrations. And I just want to hear your perspective on how they were used in this particular arbitration, how it went, and then any just general reflections you have on on remote depositions. Sure. And I agree with you. I mean, the one good thing that is certainly available is all of us have had to figure out the technology, including courts. And if we've had to buy at firms or in courthouses, if we've had to buy new technology, we've done that and we've kind of ironed it out. And so people are able to use it now. And so here's the good news. The good news is if you believe that a particular deposition is not very you know, critical or maybe you think it's an easy deposition, um, but the person is far away, you know, this is a great money saver. You know, when you're not putting lawyers on airplanes and sending people across the globe to do a deposition, you're saving a ton of money, even on expert depositions, right? So so that's certainly the good news. Also, you know, I have to wonder, 
typically right now, the way things are is when you have somebody testifying at a hearing or at a trial, they really have to be live. You can ask that somebody appear by telephone, and oftentimes that's rejected. But bringing someone in on a big screen on Zoom, now that we've done this so much, um, into trial even, is, is possible. And so does that change some of our subpoena powers going forward? Is anyone outside the subpoena power if we're only asking them to Zoom in for a couple of hours? Does that change the dynamic of some of what we're doing? So I won't tell you that it's 100% bad. But on the other hand, you know, I miss in-person depositions. There is so much that is lost when you are talking to somebody over a computer or over a screen. And we see this not only with depositions, but certainly even with arguments, oral arguments to the judge, evidentiary hearings, right? You just can't get someone's attention the way that you typically could if you were right in front of someone's face. And so you have to take more breaks. You have to be more clear. You have to prepare more in order to get this done. And so for me, like, for example, with this past case, when I'm taking a 30B6 deposition all over Zoom, I think there were five or six different witnesses. So we would break and then they would bring in a new witness and you had to have all your exhibits ready. And it was just constant interruption. And I think it's hard for them. I think it's hard on both sides. It's hard for a lawyer to get your attention. It's hard for a witness to pay attention. And so you see both things happening. You see the lawyer can't really get out of the deponent what she wants, right? I can't get you to really understand the gravity of what's going on here without me being right in front of you. There's also such a lack of body language, right? So in depositions, you can get so much out of people by what you do or what you don't do, right? Mirroring their body language nodding your head, tell me more, right? This is what you want. You want them to talk. You want to hear from them. And when you're over a blank screen, they just kind of, they're a little bit more quiet and they don't want to talk to you. And it doesn't feel like a conversation, which is what a lawyer wants it to be. A lawyer wants it to sound like a conversation, but it's just not as friendly. Um, also, it's not as adversarial. And so when you get to a point where you know somebody is not telling the whole truth, you're not a threat because you're, you know, light years away and there's a computer in front of you. So you're just not threatening. So those things that we do that typically work, such as just staring somebody down and not asking a question and waiting for somebody to suffer through the silence and then they'll start talking, it just doesn't work the same in a deposition that's done remotely. And so I think you lose a lot of the weapons in your arsenal. I mean, there are some other good things, I guess, because you don't burn the time traveling, so maybe you have more time to prepare or something, but you need more time to prepare. If you're going into a Zoom deposition, you have to be almost twice as prepared as you would walking into a normal deposition because you've got to you know, present your slides and things like that. And you just don't have as much time, I would say, because even if you have, let's say, under the federal rules, six hours on the record, with all of the delays and the difficulties with technology, you're not going to get those six hours. You just really aren't. And so if the other side is really collegial and cooperative, they might give you a little more time. But at that time, too, your, your deponent is so tired. Are you really going to get much more out of him? So the depositions in that case went fine. But had I gone to arbitration, would the deponent have reacted to me in the same way in person? Well, um, again, all the points you made are, are so well taken, and especially at a time when I think the 
conventional wisdom or the emerging consensus, at least in some circles, is that we need to do more and more via video and remote technology. And I certainly don't dispute that more would be a fine thing for the sake of efficiency, but so much is lost. And uh, we should be very clear-eyed about what is sacrificed and, and make sure that before we start moving to these remote technologies, know what we're losing and be selective about when we when we use them for all the reasons that you stated. I think the only thing that I would add to the many points that you made was that when you're in person, there is more gravity to the situation. I think the witness has a better understanding that this is a serious situation and that they need to bring to that their, you know, the appropriate demeanor and the appropriate level of attention and and so on. You can't help, you almost can't help but to have the right demeanor when you're sitting in a courtroom or even when you're sitting live for a deposition in a formal setting in a conference room. But of course, we've all heard the stories about people um, dressed inappropriately, getting up and walking out, whatever, you know, having a cat in their lap, you know, whatever it is, you know, during a deposition that they would never, they would never do if they're going to actually sit in some attorney's office or sit in a courthouse or sit on trial at the stand. And I think that's exactly right, what you said about the gravity of the situation. And so not only are you dealing with how you might take a deposition, but think about how you're going to defend one. So even though the clients didn't all live here in Denver where I live, the family was spread out. I did for the depositions in this past case, I required everybody to come to the office for a week and everybody came every day dressed up in suits and everybody, uh, you know, we had monitors all spread out. It was a very serious situation because two things happen. One is exactly what you said. If you don't prepare yourself for how serious this is, you don't take it seriously. And the other one is if you're afraid of the technology, and let's face it, a lot of people are. Their network is buffering. They can't figure out how to toggle between the deposition screen and the exhibit screen. Um, They're nervous because they can't hear very well. Whatever it is, you have a client that's panicking over all of these things. And the way that it looks to me and the way I'm afraid it might look to a jury is that you're being untruthful or you're being cagey, when really your client is just so worried about the technology. But what it looks like to the cold jury all these months later is, well, gosh, he looks like he's not telling the truth at all. So bring him into the office, make it a very serious situation, and then you and your IT group, you take care of all of the difficulties and, and leave, leave your deponent, leave your witness to sit back and just relax. That is a really good point. That is really true. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you've used that technique effectively. Well, this was an arbitration with a private settlement, so I assume you can't share with us what a great result you got for your your client, but it sounded like um, the arbitration was interesting and a learning experience and things went well from your perspective. That's right. I, I unfortunately, I can't say much about it, but it was an interesting experience and most interesting because it all happened, you know, while the world was locked down. And one of the things that is interesting about that, I guess, is because the courts kept backing up and stacking, stacking, stacking. So, you know, arguably it was a faster way to get things done in arbitration instead of court during this time. But yeah, it was was a great, great learning experience and the clients walked away happy. Well, while I have you here, while I'm sitting in front of a bona fide, well, I'm not literally sitting in front of you. I wish we had the rapport of a, a real conference room or what have you. But while I have you virtually here and you're a bona fide expert on, on depositions, let me ask you 
of course, you can't distill a whole NIDA course into a one podcast, but if there's one thing, you know, that you could say to say a more junior attorney who's who's trying to build his or her deposition skills, what's one thing that you would tell that attorney about about uh, conducting a an effective deposition? I think it's in the preparation. Um, what I see for new attorneys trying to take depositions is they get into their outline and they get mired in the weeds and they want to ask about a lot of stuff. And even some senior attorneys, you'll see them do this. And this is why depositions last six hours or seven hours on relatively simple cases, because people don't seem ready or able to hone in on what's important, right? So I would say, if you're going to take a deposition, get your case kind of mapped out. You know, what's the storyline to the case? What's your chronology? And then in looking through those facts, what's missing? Those are areas you want to hit. What do you know? What do you think you know? What do you not know? Anything you don't know, you're going to want to ask, especially if it's a discovery deposition as opposed to a preservation deposition. Anything you're not sure of, you want to clarify. And if you already know it, you know, if it's an important point, you can ask it. If not, you know, you, you, you skip over that because it's, you know, maybe uncontested. But look at your jury instructions. What do you have for your elements, right? What is it of those elements of your claims that you're trying to either prove or defend against that you have locked down? What are you missing? Those are the things that you're going for, right? You don't need to get into somebody's background, you know, for an hour about where they went to high school and where they took their first ice cream shop job, right? That probably really isn't important. Get into the important things, you know? And go kind of have a plan of when you go into a deposition, what kind of deposition is it? What do I want out of this deposition? What do I want this person to say? That's what I think is missing for a lot of people. And that's kind of a pre-deposition skill. Right. The point of preparation is so important. That's true in all areas of litigation. If you're prepared enough, I mean, God knows you should have a good outline, but if you lose your place or get off track or whatever, you almost don't need the outline if you're prepared enough. I appreciate your time today, Nicole. If listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find you? So again, I'm at the law firm of Jones and Keller in Denver, Colorado, and I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get some feedback and and hear what else you've learned from Max's podcast, The Litigation War Room. And my email address is in, as in Nancy Westbrook, at joneskeller.com. Okay, great. Well, again... Thank you for sharing your insights on the litigation war room. Thank you, Max. Hey, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Ford's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in L.A.? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Ford's Legal has you covered. I use Ford's Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Ford's Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Ford's Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fordslegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com or call 844-730-4066. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. 
Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.